0: Just after one o'clock and uh, set to go. We hope you are as well. Skull's here along with uh, Tamara Gopian, James Farman. They are the pros. They've got the information, man. I just sit here and try to look good. Luckily, it's radio. I don't have to worry about that either. Look, you've got a complete <laughs> hour to uh, reach us here on air. If you have questions as pertaining to your uh, disability issues, maybe dealing with that insure, maybe getting denied, maybe getting kicked off your benefits, asked to appeal, there's a million things can happen and it's all stressful, but there is answers so you can give us a call right here, right now on air, 416-872-1010 416-872-1010 or if you prefer the text, we could do that as well, that is simply 71010 email help at disabilityrights.ca already got them piling up guys we got lots of emails to get through, questions as well from the website mydisabilityquestions.com but we always start off with a week that was or so, which one of you guys going to fire first?
1: I'll give her a shot. So uh, one of the things that uh, people are always asking about is the relationship between the lawyer and the client. And how does that really work? The first thing that you really need to understand is the idea of confidentiality. When you hire a lawyer, you have complete protection anything you say to that lawyer is not going to be repeated elsewhere so you should understand that is really the foundation of the relationship and that's Mm -hmm. important to know because it means that in that relationship you can ask whatever you want without worrying about it backfiring that's really really significant and in fact you should use that you should be asking your lawyer about anything that you are concerned about and if there's an issue then at least you've raised it and if if it's a legal issue, then your lawyer is going to be able to help you through that. So where does this come into play? So it can come into play sometimes in innocuous ways and sometimes in ways that can have a big effect on your case. So in a, a, a recent case, I was coming up for mediation as you know, we get prepared to do mediation. We drill down on the file and we'll circle back with our clients and ask for an update on how things are going. And usually, you get a little bit of information. You fill in some gaps, some things that might not have been in the record, or something new that's come up. Not a big deal, you know. Maybe you tweak something here or there, but basically, you know what you have going in. But on occasion, on occasion, you will learn something that you didn't expect to learn that can have a big impact on your case. For example, um, in a particular case, a client advised that they had been working past six months, which, um, you know, I want to be clear about something when you go on long-term disability and you bring a lawsuit, a lot of people are concerned that that means that you cannot go back to work. That is absolutely not the case. And I've said this many times on the show, and I certainly say this, every one of my clients, you absolutely can, and you should. So it isn't a problem that they went back to work, but the problem is that they didn't tell me and so yeah. you know here we are on the cusp of mediation and they've been back at work for 6 or 7 months so first thing is at that point we have to tell the the insurer You can't go into mediation and pretend that you're not working. There's always a chance that they've done their own surveillance, but even if not, it's completely unethical. And it's just something that um, neither I nor any of the lawyers at our firm would ever do. If you have someone who's back at work, you can't pretend that they are not. But there's nothing wrong with that. You can and should go back to work. The issue is that the case could have been resolved five, six months ago. Usually, the moment someone goes back to work, we're not necessarily saying to the insurer, okay, they're back at work, let's get this settled. Usually what we do is we say, okay, try going back to work, see how it goes, give it four, five, six weeks. And if at the end of that, you're feeling confident that you're going to succeed, then let's bring the insurer in and see if we can get it resolved without even having to go to mediation. So this could have all been wrapped up months ago, except wasn't in the list. And so the point is this, when you hire a lawyer, you should keep them in the loop. You should keep them up to date on things that are happening and changing in your life. I always say to my clients, you know, it is not necessary that you get my permission to do anything. You, you know, if anything needs permission, then you go to your doctor and make sure that what you are uh, looking to do is medically okay. But as long as it's okay with your doctor, I'm not going to tell you not to do it, but I do need to know because it can obviously have an impact on your case. And so in that situation, I could have saved the client a lot of time and myself a lot of effort. And the client just kept me up to date. Tamar?
2: This is ringing true because, in fact, James and I talked about this particular situation just this week. um, And we were uh, thinking about how best to position this for our listeners because it is absolutely true and genuine, that we want nothing more than our clients to be healthy and feel better and get back to work. That is a true statement in every circumstance. And nothing can be truer than wanting that mutuality with your client for that open and honesty that, look, this is the path that I'm on, and therefore resolving the disability claim in that vein. So the add-on, I would say, to everything that I agree with entirely with what James said was, That We're mindful of also the recurrence provision. We talk about that on occasion on the shows, which is if you have received disability benefits and you're cut off or your claim comes to an end and you do return back to work, but that doesn't stick because your health issues reemerge or persist again and you cannot continue working, usually there is a provision in disability policy that says if that happens within a six-month window, at the end of one claim and the start of a potentially new claim, Then it is a continuation of the original claim. And so benefits typically should start back up without having that claimant wait for the waiting period or what we also call an elimination period. And the reason that's significant in a litigated claim for us is because we want to wait out that period of time or see what's happening with our client's return to work. So keeping us in the loop will allow us then to look at the policy consider what it says about return to work, consider what it says about recurrence so that we're giving our clients accurate advice and informed advice. After all, that's really why they've hired us so that we can not only provide that expertise, but also give some strategy around, look, this is the best approach for you going forward. So to James's point, the resolution may either come sooner or perhaps the better approach is just to wait a little bit longer to see how the client succeeds in their return to work process. So that's one element of it. And of course, echoing the idea that we want to have that open dialogue with our clients and the the confidence that they have in us, that we're going to do absolutely the best thing that we can do for them. This, though, also goes in terms of what we do with insurance companies and how we deal with them and their lawyers. And our reputation is everything. And so we usually will have good relationships in the sense that good working relationships with insurers, and they have clear awareness about how we litigate, what we do, what our experience is. And that translates into excellent results with these insurers and their lawyers. And so we never want to be put in a position where we're not 150% prepared, where we're not controlling the narrative, controlling the information that's being sent to the disability insurer to maximize the resolution in a timely way and in terms of compensation as well. And so if we're not getting that dialogue and that openness from our clients, it can compromise how we can leverage those relationships and our reputation and the claim itself and the facts and all the things that we do in the medical information to get that result so i think that the long and short of it is is that when you are thinking about you know retaining a disability lawyer and pursuing a disability claim just remember that we are in your corner quite literally mm. and it is important to keep that dialogue going so that we're positioning the claim in the best way to to the benefit of the client
0: Let's get started on our uh, first email of the day, guys. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca is how you send one along. Evan says, hey, guys, my insurer has been calling every month and putting me through a rigorous question period, everything from time I get up to the time I went to bed, and uh, everything in between, as a matter of fact. Uh, I'm getting fed up with the constant once-a-month harassing calls and want to know if I can just direct the case manager to talk to my doctor. This has been going on now for at least six months of a 14-month long-term disability. What do you guys say? (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, that can be difficult, and I have a lot of sympathy for Evan. It isn't necessarily the case that there's a lot you can do about it, at least not yet. So yeah, six months seems like it's a long time for them to be going through it. But without understanding what is going on with Evan's claim, and more importantly, with his health, it's hard to really comment on whether or not that might be justified by the insurer, at least to some extent. Because if Evan is in a position where his disability, although it's still preventing him from working, is improving, and there are signs that he may be able to return to work at some point in the relatively near future, the insurer is correctly going to take a great interest in his progress and want to understand what is going on. And so that may be what is behind those frequent calls and the level of detail involved. On the other hand, if Evan is clearly disabled and he is still finding uh, or searching for a treatment that might work and there is no particular reason to be optimistic of a return in the near future, then it would seem that that is overkill. So the context is really important here to understand whether or not what the insurer is doing is warranted. There's also you know, the issue of how those calls are made and the demeanor of the claims manager that's calling, and to some extent, the level of detail. Everything is about context, and everything has to be reasonable. So calling once a month and asking for what your day to day is is not in and of itself to me offensive, even if his claim is still working itself out. But if they are being if they're bullying about it and they are asking for an absurd level of detail then it can be, particularly in a case where the disability is very clearly established.
0: And with that, guys, it is a quick break time. I saw a call there, but I think it dropped. You want to call back. You've got plenty of time. Bring it on now as we get to a break. 416-872-1010. Or if you want to send us a text, we can get to those during the remainder of the hour. That is 71010. And that email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. We will continue just getting warmed up here on the Disability Law Show. Hang on. Hey, we are back. It is one twenty. Welcome. Thank you for sticking around. You can uh, text us any time uh, seven ten ten or email. We answer a lot of email on the show help at disabilityrights.ca, and there's also a website which is free and anonymous called mydisabilityquestions.com. Same drill. You can go there and ask all the questions you like, and it might appear on a uh, on a show, a future show if not this one. We'll get to one uh, now. Guys it says if Ltd paid for an independent medical review and a specific therapy is recommended, is LTD responsible in funding the therapy? My health insurance only covers up to a certain amount. Good question.
2: Yeah, it is a really good question, and it's not a great answer, John, because it's <laughs> usually a no. It's usually a no. So look, there's, there's. let's clarify a couple things. An independent medical assessment is one that the insurance company will do by hiring their own expert doctor in a particular area, sometimes as a specialist, specialist rather, Other times it can just be a general doctor, but regardless, it's one that's intended to provide them with answers to certain specific questions. So they will, the insurance company will send all the medical information they have on file and other details, and they will direct this particular expert to provide them answers to the really key ones, which are, what's the current diagnosis? What's the prognosis? Can this person work? Okay. And based on that, they will make a decision about ongoing entitlement to benefits Or alternatively, if there are further treatment recommendations that are going to be made from that expert, then they may put that into place, or they may send it over to your own doctor and say, hey, doc, your patient needs these treatment recommendations based on what our doctor has said. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, though, because what if your own doctor disagrees, number one? (laughs) And number two, what if you can't access those treatments? Regardless, the insurance company is going to say, well, we think that if you get these treatment efforts your claim will come to an end and you should be able to work um, they are investing money in it in order to actually go down this path of bringing the claim to an end that's how they make money so we know this uh the thing is though when they put these rehab plans in place if they do so if they say look we need this we think you need this treatment you say I can't access the treatment they say okay here's our great provider you go to this provider but they will want to exhaust your extended health plan first before you are. they're going to pay out of pocket or you have to pay out of pocket for this treatment. So it's tricky because they tie this into certain requirements under the policy that say, if we think you must get this type of treatment and you're not complying with what we think you need, then we can also cut off your benefits on this basis. So That's why I say it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Yes, you want to access treatment measures. Most people I speak with are like, look, I want to get better. I don't know what else to do. Insurance company saying I should try this or that. Fine, I'll try it. Um, But the alternative is, is that if it's not going to get you there, or if you've already attempted these treatment measures, and your doctor's still saying you're not well enough to work, well, then the insurer should theoretically be continuing to pay those benefits. So I think the long and short of it is, is that there's no easy answer there. You have to work with the insurance company with these efforts and be mindful of the fact that in the end, it may bring your claim to an end regardless of which route you go. Bit cynical, but that's my two cents worth. What do you think, James?
1: Well, I I think I'm looking at this question a little bit differently, perhaps. So to me, I, I think this question is about whether or not the funding will come from the insurer. And It doesn't necessarily matter. Some policies will uh, have that incorporated into it, some won't, and sometimes even if it doesn't, the insurer will voluntarily pay for it. In fact, more often than not, we will see that in the event where you don't have the ability to get those treatments paid for through your own benefits. We'll see an insurer, in fact, offer to pay for it. So I I think more often than not, it isn't really going to be a huge issue. And if they don't agree to pay for it and it's not covered under your benefits, then you've just got yourself a really strong argument about why you continue to be disabled, because their own doctor says that you need this treatment and you can't afford it and they won't pay for it. So there's no way that you can get it. So if that is the case, I don't really think it's a problem, at least insofar as your claim with the insurer goes. Perhaps the insurer will still cut you off anyway, but if they do, they've just opened themselves up, not just to paying your benefits, but to punitive damages claim. And so I don't really see that scenario come up all that often, where there's a recommended treatment, you can't afford it, the insurer refuses it, and then cuts off your benefits. I just don't see that scenario playing out very much. The bigger issue to me is a little bit more subtle, actually, which is where there's a recommended treatment and your doctor doesn't say there's a problem with it and the insurer agrees to pay for it and sends you to one of their providers. And now you're in a situation where you're going to someone who is paid by the insurer in your case and almost certainly in dozens, if not hundreds of other cases as well. And that means that that insurance provider is relying on that insurance company, your insurance company for a big chunk of their business which means they want to make them happy. They want to show that they are effective and that by the insurer sending people to them, the insurer is ultimately gonna get what they want. How do they do that? Well, they do that by showing how great they are at rehabbing disabled uh, claimants so that they're able to go back to work. And so the the provider that they send you to has a built-in reason for looking at your progress in a particular way to show that you have made perhaps more of a recovery than you have in highlighting the gains that you've had and minimizing the setbacks. And that we see all the time. And that is why when we talk about this, we always encourage people to avoid using the treatment providers that are suggested or recommended by your insurer. Because invariably, you're going to be in a situation where you're not sure if you can trust what they are doing, that they are doing this in your benefit, or if they're really just trying to serve the insurer. And more often than not, I think, unfortunately, it's the latter. And so where there is treatment recommended, the first option should always be one, go to your doctor and make sure that your doctor agrees that the treatment is necessary. And if they do, then see if there is a way that you can afford to get that treatment on your own. Whether it's covered under OHIP, whether it's covered under an extended health plan, either through your work or if you have a partner and you're covered under their plan through theirs, or if not, even out of pocket is usually going to be preferable to having the insurer fund the treatment. Unfortunately, it's just not always an option for everybody particularly when you're not working and you're not getting benefits. And sometimes you you may just not have a choice. If it's treatment that is going to be helpful and you have no other way of paying for it and the insurer is offering, then I understand there's a practical reality there because in that scenario, if they're offering and you refuse, they're going to cut off your benefits and then you're in an even worse spot. So there are scenarios where unfortunately you may not have much But whenever you can, I strongly recommend avoiding using the provider suggested by the insurer and finding one on your own. If your doctor approves of the treatment, says that the treatment is reasonable and necessary, ask your doctor for a referral to someone who can provide that treatment. And make sure you go through your own benefits, uh, any benefit plan that you're covered under to see if you can pay for
0: it. Probably a quick call, guys. Brian, thanks for standing by, pal. How are you today?
3: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. What's up? What's your question?
3: Well, actually, uh, as I sort of said to your uh, screener there, um, I've been on uh, disability for about a year now, maybe a year and a bit, and uh, had surgery on my shoulder, uh, second surgery on my shoulder, because they sent me back to work too soon. My employer uh, put me to uh, full duty instead of uh, light duties, like they were told, and I had to go back for a second surgery now. Uh, they've removed uh, the, the uh, tendons in my shoulder, and my surgeon has told me it's permanent. And I am now uh, just coming up on my 65th birthday, and I'm wondering, do I have to retire at 65? Because when I do, I lose all my benefits. Mm. Now, if I was still working, I don't have to retire at 65. But like, do I have to retire, or can I continue to reap the benefits of my uh, benefits for the next as long as I live.
2: Yeah. Brian, let me jump in there. Are you unionized by any chance? Yes, I am. Yep. Okay. So your collective agreement is the answer, I think, to certain questions, though I'd be surprised if there's a ma- mandatory retirement age under your employment agreement or collective agreement that says you must retire at age 65. Okay, okay, when you're okay, unionized... Yeah. Unfortunately, when you're unionized, your rights as an employee and your employment rights are tied to whatever it says in that collective agreement. So I would okay, start so, there to find you, even well, if
3: I, I, I have yep. done that. And there, there, there is no mandatory retirement age in my union.
2: Right. I'm just wondering. right.
3: I'm just wondering if the uh, if the uh, uh, the insurance company will mandate it that I have to retire at sixty five.
2: No, they're just, your LTD benefits will end when you turn 65 years old, most likely. Okay.
0: Brian, we got to let you, got to let you roll, got to get into some news and come back after the break. You got a chance to make that phone call if you have a disability concern, 416-872-1010. We continue with the Disability Law Show. Stand by. That is a fact. It one thirty-five on a Saturday. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, phone calls, 416 872 Ten ten or text seven ten ten as well. Email works. That's what we uh, generally read from each and every week. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. But if you want to reach out after the show, have a uh, private chat with either James or Tamar or a member of their uh, their team. You could do so. Always invited to one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Justin is up next. As guys, I work uh, full time for an insurance company. I was diagnosed about ten years ago with Parkinson's, which is getting progressively worse, both physically and mentally. My LTD policy with the insurance company is set at 70% of base salary. Do I qualify for long-term disability or will I be transferred into a much lesser job with a significantly reduced salary? Please advise. What do you guys
1: think? Well, so this is certainly an interesting question. And just as a side note, uh, Parkinson's is a particular disease that we have quite a bit of experience with. And in fact, we have uh, had an evening with a national Parkinson's group where Savon and I spent a few hours discussing issues that the members of this group had and answering questions about long-term disability, disability benefits, questions very much like Justin's right now. So one thing that I definitely should address right at the start. The diagnosis itself does not entitle you to a disability benefit. And I think Justin's question, his situation is really indicative of that. He was diagnosed 10 years ago, but has obviously continued to be working in the meantime because it's not necessarily the case at the moment that you are diagnosed, you become in, uh, unable to function in your work environment. And certainly that wasn't true in Justin's case. He's been able to persevere for 10 years. Although it's a progressive disease and obviously it's getting harder, which is, I'm sure, what has prompted him to write to us. So then the question becomes, what does Justin do as the disease progresses and his ability to be able to be productive at work deteriorates and he's no longer able to work full time? And so he's asking, do I continue working at a reduced salary in a different job or do I go on LTD? So here is the way that I would strongly recommend you deal with it, whether it's Justin in his particular situation or anyone else who is in this situation where you have a progressive disease and you can see that at a certain point in time is going to prevent you from being able to continue on a full-time basis. I would strongly encourage anyone in that situation to avoid changing your employment status. At all costs, avoid changing your employment status. whether you need to get an accommodation from your employer that allows you to work reduced hours even though you are still a full-time employee, uh, you know that would be great if you have an employee if you have an employer that is prepared to do that for you. but what you don't want is to change your job status from full-time to part-time and at a reduced salary or even a reduced role because as soon as you do that then your insurance changes the amount that you are insured for will change. And so in Justin's case, were he to do the accommodation route where he is transferred to a lesser job with a reduced salary, and let's say that allows him to continue working for an extra two or three years, I mean, that's great. The problem is that because it's progressive, we know that at a certain point, even that won't be sufficient. And then he's in a situation where he's going to have to go on LTD. But his LTD Mm -hmm. at that point, is only gonna cover him for 70% of his new salary, not the salary that he had before because he's changed his employment status. Whereas if he continues in his job as it is for as long as he can and tries to get accommodations, tries to uh, get an agreement from his employer to temporarily work um, reduced hours or reduced schedule for as long as they're prepared to do that until it's no longer practical, then, that's the route he has to go because when he has to go on LTD he really wants to make sure that it is going to be at the full job at the full salary because at that point onwards it's unlikely he's going to be able to work again and i don't know how old justin is i don't know if he's you know in his you know 30s or 40s but you know he could well have another 20 25 years of benefits available under the policy and those are years where he's not going to be able to work And it's really critical that he focuses on his future, on what's going to be available to him up until age 65, and much less on what's gonna happen over the next two years. Usually I would tell people you you do whatever you can to keep working as long as possible. But in this sort of situation, I think you do what you can to stay in the job that you have for as long as possible. And then when you can no longer do it, when your employer is no longer prepared to go further, to allow you to continue, then you have to take a leave you have to go on LTD at that point. Tamar, anything i've missed here no
2: not, not at all actually i i just looked at it a little bit differently in the sense that um the idea of these progressive health issues right james and w- at what point do you make that decision Uh, that decision tree of do I go to a reduced work capacity or do I pursue long-term disability benefits? That's what resonated with me with Justin's email. And this is the classic, like, this is medical advice, not legal advice, because that is the tipping point. When you and your doctors determine that your function and your symptoms have progressed to such a point that you are now prevented from doing your own occupation, that is the point in time in which you should be pursuing long-term disability benefits. And I can agree with James Moore um, about that decision tree and not compromising potentially a full LTD benefit, even if it is going to be two thirds of what you're making, as opposed to a reduced work capacity, where you may be earning even less than that. But then you know, as it progresses, because Parkinson's is like one of those diseases, that's only going to get worse with time. You know, MS is one of those conditions as well. There's a variety of others that just don't get better with time, that you will get to a point at some point that you won't be able to work at all. And so from a compensation perspective and securing those benefits and securing employment, uh, you've got to bear that in mind, depending on what your disability is. And we do deal with these kinds of progressive conditions a lot. And I have seen insurers take ridiculous positions and saying, well, the fact that your client has continued to work with the progressive health issue must mean they should be able to continue to work. And nothing could be further from the truth when there is solid medical support that this particular individual has progressed to the point where they can't be working. So if this res- is resonating and, you know, th- this doesn't sound right, or you're getting resistance from the disability insurer, or perhaps even with your employer, this is where we come in. And I want to encourage individuals, you know, we we work across the country, we do free comp- consultations, we have a very deep team that does both disability and of course, employment work as well. And these are the kinds of situations that we are really well-suited to advise people and direct them correctly back to their doctor to make those choices and then go forward with either the disability claim or an accommodated uh, work situation.
0: Let me get started on another email, guys. If we got to return to it after the break, we will. But this one from Gaston says, "I uh, Hi there, I had a serious knee injury and have been on LTD since March 2020. My job is very physical and the insurance company is attempting to push me back to work in about two weeks with both my doctor and I think it's at least a month too early. Uh, Also, the return to work doesn't seem to be gradual enough. What options are best for me?
2: I think medical is really where this comes in. Uh, you don't want to buckle under the pressure of the insurance company trying to rush a return to work if it's not medically supported. Because all Gaston is going to be doing is putting himself in a situation where he may be taking three steps back from all the progress that he had probably made to get to the point, and great on him and his team to get back to that point where he can gradually return back to work. So In these kinds of processes, when you are on claim and you are dealing with your adjuster on a return to work, it is very, very important to get detailed medical information from your own doctor or specialist on what that return to work should look like, both from a gradual perspective, so how many weeks, how many hours a day are you going to be working, how long is that period of time going to go, and if there are further restrictions, limitations, that need to be put in place, accommodations that is, into the work setting to allow you to get back. So the starting point is always what is your own doctor saying about this process and having that be respected and coordinated with your adjuster and your employer so that your return to work is successful. Because if it's not, guess what? You're going to be right back to square one and having to battle the insurance company to get your benefits continued continuing to be paid.
0: Yeah, so thank you very much for that. We'll take a short break, guys. To get to more emails and uh, mydisabilityquestions.com questions on the other side. In the meantime, reaching out to James and Tamar. It's available to you, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca, and the website ltdfaq.ca, short, concise, non-legalese notations about the topic of uh, long-term disability, so use that as well. Back with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. Alrighty, a few minutes to go. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in this afternoon. Uh, anytime after the show, reaching out to James Farman, Tamar Gopian. always uh, welcome to do so. Couldn't be in better hands, that's for sure. 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And I did mention another website that's uh, anonymous, easy for you to use on your uh, smartphone, your tablet, your desktop, even my disabilityquestions.com Searchable database, that's the way the algorithm works. So you can look for a Similar question to yours that may have been asked, and you can read the answer or answers that uh, that follow from it. Here, guys, here we go. It says uh, I was diagnosed with osteoarthritis in both knees and lower back, as well as COPD. I've been off since August 2022 on LTD. The insurer tells me that the files they see are of a mild diagnosis, and they're sending me to an eight-week rehab program. Am I expected to return to work shortly after that? My knees and back are in incredible pain despite the mild diagnosis. Is there anything I can do?
1: Very interesting question. And so we, we, we do both disability work and uh, personal injury work as well and the employment. But the personal injury is where I see this come up a fair bit, because we're dealing with uh, orthopedic injuries a lot in the personal injury context. And I had a trial about 10 years ago. It was a personal injury trial. And my client was injured in a fairly low-speed car accident. And the x-ray showed some mild arthritis in his knees, and he was in a tremendous amount of pain. And the key witness was an expert orthopedic surgeon that I had called. Great guy. He's uh, the, the head of orthopedics at Mount Sinai, David Baxing. And what David did is he came in and he told the jury about the difference between radiographic imaging and what's actually experienced and the reality is that what you see on x-rays when you see arthritis on x-rays that doesn't mean that the person is in pain and they can't function they could have arthritis severe arthritis on an x-ray and still be completely functional without any pain and likewise you have very mild or even almost no signs of arthritis and be in tremendous pain It doesn't follow that when you see it on an x-ray, it means that there is great dysfunction and vice versa. That's just not the way that it works. And so in this particular situation where you have a mild diagnosis, you have mild uh, osteoarthritis in both knees and the lower back, and they're saying, oh, well, it's just mild, and therefore you should be okay. That's not how it works. What matters is this person's ability to function in their job. And if he, is, he or she is experiencing severe pain that is preventing them from being able to function, then they're entitled to LTD benefits, whether the x-ray show it's mild or not, because that doesn't determine the level of function. And so what we have here is sort of a classic, almost textbook LTD case where the insurer is relying on a particular diagnosis in this case, because it serves their purposes to justify ending benefits earlier than is possible. And unfortunately, when you're in this situation, there is almost nothing that you're going to be able to do that is going to change your insurer's mind while it's in adjudication. This is one where I don't think there's anything that your doctors could say that will change the insurer's mind and keep you on benefits. But that doesn't mean that's the end of the story, quite the opposite. Because when they cut you off in this situation, and it will happen, that's when we bring a claim. Because the reality is they're not entitled to deny based on a mild diagnosis because the law says the diagnosis doesn't matter. This gets back to the question we did in the last segment about justice. When Justin wrote in and he was talking about having been diagnosed with Parkinson's and does that mean he gets LTD? Well, as we discussed, he'd been on a, he, he, he diagnosed with Parkinson's 10 years before and had continued to work. So having a particular diagnosis does not mean that you are disabled from working. You may or may not be, but what matters is your ability to function in the job. And in this particular case, if there is severe pain in the knees and back, whether it's caused by mild osteoarthritis or something else, if that is the experience that this person is having, that is preventing them from being able to work, they're entitled to benefits. And when the insurer cuts them off, we bring a lawsuit and we get the benefits that you're entitled to. As so simple as that. Tamar, what do you think? It?
2: I I couldn't agree with James Moore and and mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> because this is classic this is the the this is the one where you see the letters john that say there's not enough objective medical evidence to support your disability claim when you've got a disability that's inherently subjective right pain is something that is a experien- experiential ex- thing i'm saying it sort of in a m- mangled way but the reality is is that it's a person to person situation and insurance companies don't like that right? They actually want to see something on a scan, something in a medical record, something on a report. And when you see that the condition itself is described on a radiology report saying it's mild, doesn't mean that the experience the individual is having is mild, right? And this actually goes back to the first email we dealt with with Evan, who was saying to us, look, the adjuster is calling me and asking me so many questions about everything that I do from morning till night. Well, that's an opportunity for people like Evan or other claimants who are having a subjectively based disability to detail with concrete examples to the insurance company about how their function is being impacted, regardless of the fact that it may be described as quote unquote mild on a radiology report. And those things being echoed by your own doctors and treatment providers, let's say it's a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist, an acupuncturist. I can name a number of different other practitioners who are not specific MDs, but who can validate those kinds of symptoms also goes a long way in supporting that disability claim, regardless of what the insurer made do you down the road and resisting having to actually pay those disability benefits. That's what we're here for.
0: You betcha. A couple minutes, guys. Let's get this one in. Sherilyn says, I'm on LTD and I just had a miscarriage at 12 weeks. They didn't know I was pregnant. I was going to tell them at 15. How do I tell my insurance about this? I don't want to talk about it or go into details so I can send an email informing them. It affects my depression and physical health. Hmm.
2: Really, really tough. I'm so sympathetic. This one really resonates with me. And Look, I absolutely understand and sympathize with a situation that you don't want to have to explain all of your symptoms and conditions uh, necessarily to a complete stranger, churns adjuster, or maybe it's even your employer, and all of the above. The thing is, though, that that can be uh, contained in medical information without Cheryl having to actually articulate it or having to talk about it necessarily. But it is part of the process of getting disability benefits, which is you've got to make an application, you've got to do a written attestation about what's happening with your disability claim, you've got to get your doctors to complete that information as well, and submit that over for consideration to the adjuster. And usually, as part of the routine adjudication of a claim, the adjuster will give the claimant a call and talk about their disability claim and ask questions about it. And so it can be really, really challenging, absolutely, Uh, but you hope you hope that there are some sensitivities around that and that at the very least they will take at face value what's being considered in the ltd application Um, it's not always the case but it is a difficult part of that process in order to get the benefits that uh, an individual is entitled to last thoughts james
1: well in this particular case i think sherman's already on ltd so i think the you know this can be accomplished simply by asking Uh, her doctor to just send in the documents showing that has happened, and that shouldn't really impact her ongoing claim. If anything, Mm -hmm. it probably strengthens strengthens it, because obviously going through something like that is going to uh, have an impact on your mental health and make it more difficult for you to return to work at any point in your future.
0: And we are done. To reach out now to the guys, uh, now the show is over, 1-855-821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.